Hello and welcome to the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. I'm thrilled to be joined right now by Chris Bodig. Chris runs the website Cooperstown Cred. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Ross, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I ask everyone this right at the top of the show. Tell me what got you initially got you into baseball in the first place. Well, uh, let's see. I'm 51 years old. Uh, I started collecting baseball cards when I was uh, eight. That would be 1975. Um, I didn't have parents who cared much about the, the sport, but uh, I had a lot of friends in school, and I, uh, I started to collect cards. I fell in love with the Oakland A's because I thought their mustaches were really cool. And <laughs> then they lost in the playoffs to the Red Sox, and I thought Louis Piant's Fu Manchu was really cool, and I became a Red Sox fan. But I was growing up in New York, so I had to pick a New York team, too, and I became a Mets fan as well. And uh then I started reading Bill James in the early 1980s, and uh, he opened my eyes to just a lot of different ways of looking at it. And uh, I wound up working at ESPN for 12 years from 1989 to 2001, but uh, always a baseball fan through and through. Do you still have the cards? I do still have the cards. Yeah, they're at my mother's place in New York City, but yeah, they're still there. Very nice. Why the interest in the specialty in the Hall of Fame? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I just was always fascinated by the, 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 the debate. Who's going to get in? Who's not going to get in? I, I visited the Hall of Fame for the first time when I was 13 years old. We uh, took a, a family trip uh, up uh, to upstate New York, uh, Rochester, where I had an aunt living. Uh, during, during that same week that I went to the Hall of Fame, I went to my first golf tournament and saw Jack Nicklaus win the 1980 uh, PGA Championship at uh, Oak Hill in Rochester. That was a heck of a week for a sports fan at 13 years old. Um, and I've just always been fascinated by it ever since then. And uh, for the last uh, five or six years, sort of uh, been thinking about uh, who should go in. And i got to tell you, you know, Ross, the, the 2013 shutout when nobody got in uh, was one of those uh, seminal moments where I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Yeah, and it's interesting. We'll talk a little bit about the shutout because I remember shortly after the shutout, Dave Cameron over at Fangraphs, he wrote a piece saying how modern players are very underrepresented with the Hall of Fame. And I remember when he wrote that piece thinking, yeah, but there's a wave coming. And after that shutout, since the shutout, the writers have put in 20 guys, and we just saw two years in a row now the Veterans Committee have put in two each. So that's 24 players who basically played in the 80s and 90s who are now in the Hall of Fame that weren't there five years ago, and I think that's great. I could not agree with you more, uh, Ross. The uh, 80s, 90s, and uh, the aughts are um, proportionally extraordinarily underrepresented compared to the earlier uh, decades. In, in particular, uh, the first uh, you know, five uh, decades of the 20th century. Uh, you know, I, I was looking this morning at the 1946 Hall of Fame ballot, and uh, nobody got in uh, from the writers. Uh, Frank Chance was the leading vote-getter at 71%. Uh, but the first 28 vote-getters in 1946, anyone with 11% or more wound up in the Hall of Fame uh, in, the, in the subsequent years, either through the writers or through uh, the old-timers committee or veterans committee. Uh, and so <laughs> could you imagine you know, going back uh, 60 years from now or so, looking at... You know, basically everybody who got 10% or more on this ballot, if they all wound up in the Hall of Fame. So that's kind of the historical, you know, inequity. Uh, not to mention that you have all the Negro League players from the first half of the 20th century who were rightfully inducted as well. Uh, you just have a, a very, very large disparity 
between uh, you know, players from that part of uh, baseball history and the players that Ross, you and I got to watch. And I, personally, I think it's fun to see people that, that we were watching make it into the Hall of Fame with all the plaques of the people that all we can do is read about. And that's right. And modern players are still underrepresented. Obviously, that gap is shrinking uh, when they put in three or four players every year. But you need to find the balance, and I think the Hall needs to find the balance of the 1930s are overpopulated. There were too many players from the 1930s in the Hall of Fame. You don't want it to be oversaturated, and I hope that the Baines induction doesn't trigger some people to say, well, if Baines is in, everybody should be in. Because throughout, in every Hall of Fame, there were players who I I think could be classified as mistakes. Baines is probably one of those guys, but I I don't think he should be held as a standard for anybody going forward. Well, I agree with that, Ross. Uh, You're right. Uh, I mean, if you use you know, sabermetrics, you know, his wins above replacement or OPS plus his adjusted OPS, uh, his numbers are not there. Um, I know uh, Bill James wrote a piece uh, basically saying Rusty Staub should be in the Hall of Fame if, if Baines is, that they basically have the same statistical profiles. And I loved Rusty Staub. He was a Met when I was uh, growing up. And uh, you're right. If you put everybody in based on the lowest common denominator, then you can overdo it. But the, the process that the Hall of Fame has in place, I think, today makes that kind of impossible uh, because they are demanding 75% votes from the Veterans Committees or the Eras Committees, um, and there's only a limited amount of uh, uh, opportunities uh, for those votes to occur. So uh, uh, you're never going to see what happened um, in the early uh, Hall of Fame, 1945 and 1946, the Old Timers Committee put about 22 people in in two years. 22. <laughs> that, uh, you know, in the late 60s and 70s, you had the Frankie Frisch, Bill Terry committees that put in a bunch of their teammates, and uh, the, the process is, is more streamlined now. I think, I think, I can't believe I'm saying this, I think it's almost right, almost exactly the way it should be. Uh, I'd like to see a runoff on the veterans committees if they don't elect anybody like what happened a few years ago when dick allen tony oliva and uh, maury wills and jim cott all got very close but nobody got quite to 12 out of 16 votes but other than that i think it's working really well right now the results of course from the bbwa election were announced yesterday they put in another class of four mariano rivera roy halliday edgar martinez and mike musina they're joining lee smith and harold baines lots of interesting things happening here mariano rivera the first player to get 100 percent roy halliday who i always believed that musina and Schilling would get in after halliday i think halliday has the reputation as being the best pitcher of his generation that generation that sort of comes between the clemens maddox Johnson, Pedro, and the Kershaw, Scherzer, Verlander. There is a generation of pitchers in there, and I think that's also CC Sabathia and Johan Santana, Cliff Lee, who's going on the ballot next year, Roy Oswalt, who got bounced. Those guys, and I think Halliday is the best. You can't control when you're born, but that I think is fair that Halliday is the best of that group. But once Halliday goes in, it's going to be very difficult to keep up Musina. Musina got in right away, I think in part because Halliday was on the ballot. Uh, I mean, Messina got in this year in part because Halliday was on the ballot. And Schilling, I think we're going to see get in next year or the year after. I'd agree with that. Um, I think there's definitely, there were some coattails um, that Musina, uh, he benefited from it. Uh, I know, you know, Ross, you and I uh, and, and others uh, post uh, projections before the vote. And uh, we pr- projected Musina to be a little short based on the flip rate. How many votes was he flipping as uh, uh, 
something that you can actually track in Ryan Thibodeau's um, addictive uh, Hall of Fame tracker. Uh, and I, I didn't think that he was flipping votes at the rate needed to uh, get over 75%. But uh, clearly, uh, the, the, the writers who were uh, private voters who didn't reveal their ballots before the election, they, 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 they flipped to Messina uh, at a high rate and put him in. And, and I do agree with you that Halliday being there kind of was like, you know, if you think about it, if you're a writer and you're looking at Mike Messina, it's like, well, I don't know. He's sort of borderline to me. I don't see him as borderline, by the way. I think, I think Mike Messina was an obvious Hall of Famer, personally. I agree. But, but if you're not looking at the numbers that maybe you and I are looking at, Ross, if you're a writer who's just looking at his 3.6 ADRA and the fact that he never won a Cy Young, and you're thinking, oh, I don't know, maybe I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. But then you also think, well, He's going to get in next year anyway, so the only reason not to vote for him this year is to make him wait a year. (laughs) So why do that? Let's just vote for him now. And I think enough writers did that, and it it made the difference. He got over the hump, and I'm I'm delighted for him. And it's I think it helps the whole process uh, that we have another big class going in: uh, six players, four from the writers, and two from the from the veterans committee. So um, I agree with you. The the holiday coattails that did help Messina, and I also do feel that Halliday probably got a higher vote percentage than he might have otherwise uh, because of his untimely passing uh, in November of 2017. I, I think there's, there's a human element to, if there's some old school writers who don't like to vote for first ballot people unless they're the truly elite of the elite, uh, there, there might have been a human element thinking, well, I'm going to vote for Halliday eventually. Let's just put him in first year. I think that might have been a factor as well. Yeah, it's interesting with him. I think he was going to get in on his first ballot regardless. There's no way to know for sure, but I'm not convinced he would have got in with 87% or whatever he had. Uh, He might have been a guy that might have been around 78%. So I do think there was some element of, well, let's just put him in. Why make him wait? There's nothing being accomplished here. Not that there's anything being accomplished by making deserving players wait in general, but uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I mean, that's one of the ridiculous things. Another ridiculous thing that is no longer is we finally had a player get 100% of the vote. Mariano Rivera, it is the most BBWAA thing ever that the first player to get 100% is a reliever, but still, I'm very glad that he got 100% and that someone was able to break through there. Ross, I was so happy. I literally yelled out loud, like just as his family did. Uh, By the way, anyone who's listening to this, if you have not seen the video of Mariano Rivera and his family, when they learned that he was the first unanimous pick. Google it. It is worth watching. The joy that was in that room was just, I, I literally rewound it and watched it ten times in a row. It was amazing. And that's how I felt, too, as a fan. Uh, the fact that other players haven't gone in at 100% to me is completely silly. I mean, who are the people who didn't vote for Hank Aaron or Willie Mays or Mickey Mantle or Cal Ripken? What are they thinking? But now that that sort of uh, dam has been burst, there's nobody more worthy uh, of the honor than Rivera. Uh, I mean, he was by far the best at his craft, which is a specialty. And I know some people have a problem with that. Just he's a relief pitcher. But, I mean, far and away the best relief pitcher. Nobody even close. And had more impact on postseason baseball, uh, arguably, than anybody in the history of the game. So, um, and a class individual as well. 
Uh, I think it's great that it finally happened, that we got 100%. I think you'll see more of it now. Uh, that, that Now that it's happened, there won't be those people out there who uh, figure, well, I've, nobody's ever done it before, so it may happen again. It, you know, maybe maybe it happen next year with Jeter. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, I think Jeter has a good chance. Though I think Sean Foreman has already said, Sean Foreman, the head of baseball reference, if I if I believe correctly, if I read his Twitter correctly, he has a vote next year, and he said he may not vote for Jeter. And it would be strategic voting in that he knows Jeter's going to get in and he wants to vote for other players, which strategic voting makes sense, but that's still tough to do to be the guy that's not voting for an all-time great like that. I understand the strategic voting. It makes a lot of sense uh, when you have a limit of 10 uh, votes per ballot, which is what the writers are limited to, and if you feel that there are more than ten players who are worthy of the Hall of Fame, there is a certain. Brian Kenny talked about this uh, on MLB Network as regarding Mariana Rivera. He said if he had a vote, he would think about not voting for Rivera because, well, Rivera is going to get in anyway. Let's vote for somebody who might fall off the ballot by getting less than five percent. Uh, I I understand that concept. I don't really agree with it. I think. I don't know. If I were a voter, I'd want to be voting for the guys who made it into the Hall of Fame, and then the rest of it, the chips fall where they may. Uh, but it does make sense uh, to, you know, if somebody were to do that. We saw Edgar Martinez get in on his final year of eligibility. Three years ago, his candidacy looked kind of dead. And one of the interesting things that happened when the Hall of Fame truncated the 15-year term limit that you could be on the ballot down to 10, we've really seen a lot of significant jumps of players who were close. Uh, We saw Larry Walker gain 20% this year. He's put himself in position to get in next year, though that'll still be a tough gain for him. Edgar Martinez, the sixth person to get in in his final year, I do think we're going to see a lot of these big jumps towards the end of players' ballots, especially when they're getting the sabermetric darling push like Edgar got and like Reigns got before him. I agree with that. Um, yeah, Reigns got the sabermetric push. Uh, Edgar got it. Walker is getting it. Um, I speculated last night that Scott Rowland will be the next to take the baton, the sabermetric baton, because uh, Rowland is a guy who um, hit over 300 home runs, has a war, uh, wins of replacement of over 70, uh, and not to mention winning eight gold gloves, which which will also appeal to uh, to voters who don't, you know, look at things like war. Uh, eight gold gloves, 300 home runs, that's a pretty nice thing there. You, you will see some very, very significant leaps. Uh, I do think that ballot management, as you were talking about, strategic voting is, is something that's permeating more minds of writers. Uh, I, I'm quite certain that writers are very, very much more aware of a uh, player's voting trajectory than they used to be. Um, I, I would argue that Ryan Thibodeau's Hall of Fame tracker actually um, really helps that process because when you see early vote totals come in, uh, I guarantee you that next October, not, not October, December, uh, the, the first people to be releasing their ballots will be the strongest Larry Walker advocates. Um, and some of them will write columns as to why they feel Walker should be in the Hall of Fame, and his early numbers will look good. And I think that might influence some other people. Most of the time, uh, when a player is close, the writers do the job and they push that player over the finish line and they get him over 75%. And they usually do it with a little bit to spare, as, as we saw with uh, Edgar uh, and with Reigns. Now, now, Walker has a much bigger leap to make than Reigns did or than Edgar did. 
going from under 55%, Walker got 54.6, I think, to go from that level to over 75 uh, is a big, big jump. But uh, he's made big jumps like that in the last couple of years, and I do think uh, we have a much less crowded ballot for 2020. Uh, it's certainly uh, a possibility, and it's going to be really interesting to see if it happens. Yeah, and the ballot is losing five people, basically. I mean, the four people that got in plus Fred McGriff is gone. There are the people who got 5%, but those will be replaced. Those guys that get 1%, 2%, those are replaced by other guys next year, like Cliff Lee and Jason Giambi and Alfonso Soriano, who will get those 1% votes. But for the most part, there's a lot of space opening. We know that there are some people who said that they would vote for Walker if they had an additional spot. I just can't help but look at Walker and say he needed one more year because the year after next year is when there are no first-time first-ballot guys going in. None of them may even get 5%. So I think that if Walker had one more year, he would have made it for sure, but it's going to be very close with him next year. It will be close, and there will be drama around that. Uh, I I would say that if he falls short, um, but if he gets 70 to 75% and he's just a little bit short— he would be almost a certain shoo-in to make the Hall of Fame uh, two years later through the um, the Eras Committee, um, the Today's Game Committee. Uh, in, in the history of uh, Hall of Fame voting, uh, any any player that gets over 70%, uh, but not quite 75% because they just run out of time, uh, those, those people always get uh, voted in subsequently by the committees. Uh, and I would think that that would happen for Walker. So he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. I'm I'm 100% certain of it. The question is, will it be 2020 or 2022? Yeah, and I think uh, Fred McGriff is going to go right in once he first appears on the Veterans Committee ballot as well. Uh, he is a Veterans Committee kind of guy, and McGriff is legitimately borderline. I do think he got hosed by the strike and a little bit by the steroid era as well. So I think McGriff going in will be fine. Uh, people will be a little bit upset about that, but McGriff is nowhere near like the, it's not comparable to the Bain situation at all. I think McGriff is going to get in in a couple of years and that'll be fine. I'm a big Fred McGriff guy. I, I do think that, you know, if you look at, um, you know, how he ranked among his peers in the first half of his career, he was definitely a hall of famer. He had a, uh, adjusted OPS plus of over 150. Uh, in the second half of his career, his uh, adjusted OPS was uh, about 125 or 126. But in the second half of his career, you know, the you know OPS plus is supposed to adjust for the hitting environment, but it's adjusting along with all of the players who are putting up cartoonish video game numbers. So the the you know, so his OPS is being compared to Sammy Sosa and McGuire and Bonds and all of the crazy numbers being put up. Uh, and so the fact that he uh, actually finished his career with over 10,000 plate appearances and an OPS plus of 134, Tom Verducci pointed this out in a piece about him, that, that's, that's Hall of Fame. And uh, it's, plus he was a great postseason hitter. Nothing like the Harold Bain situation. It's not even close, in my opinion. Uh, and Fred McGriff, I think, will be a unanimous 16 out of 16 uh, pick in, in uh, 2022 by the committee. Yeah, and now let's move on to three players who are running out of time a little bit. Kurt Schilling, who had a big jump this year, Barry Bonds, and Roger Clemens. Bonds and Clemens are obviously being kept out because of their association with PEDs. I'm 
the one person that doesn't seem to think they're ever going to get in. I see them inching forward and inching forward. We don't know how many people on their final year on the ballot are just going to say, F it, we made them wait, and then put them in. That's the big wild card. But when you look at they get the support of first-time voters, and they get they flip a couple people a year, and that's about it. And that's not going to be enough for them to get in if they don't increase at a more rapid rate. No, you're, you're right. And uh, it was funny. uh Watching the, I was watching MLB Network all day yesterday. Took a day off from my, uh, from my day job, and uh, before the vote, most of the experts were talking about how you know eventually Bonds and Clemens will get in in the ninth or tenth year, but after the vote, I mean, neither one of them. There were a lot of players, Ross, yesterday who made big gains. Uh, you know, Viscal, you know, made a big gain. Larry Walker. Uh, McGriff, uh, Kurt Schilling got a lot more votes than the year before. Obviously, Musina and Edgar Martinez getting into the hall. There were a lot more votes available this year than there were the year before. And uh, from the, uh, the the early votes that were reported publicly, Bonds and Clemens only flipped three people. Uh, so their incremental gains, as you said, 2 or 3% per year is all they're getting right now. And it's all coming from new voters who are, you know, voting for the first time. Uh, there aren't enough new voters coming down the pike that I could see that will turn the tide for them. I, I agree with you. Unless, unless there is a block of 30 people, and it's going to need 30 people to change their minds. Uh, I mean, it could be 25 or 35, but something around there, that's the number of minds that will need to change between now and 2022 to get them in the Hall of Fame. And the only possibility, as you said, is if there is a block of voters who are going to make them wait until the 10th year. Uh, the other factor that could come into play is that David Ortiz uh, and Alex Rodriguez are going to be on the ballot for the first time when Bonds and Clemens are on for the last time. Now, I don't expect Alex Rodriguez to get into the Hall of Fame anytime soon because he has the documented uh, connections to PEDs and the year-long suspension. But David Ortiz is a beloved player, um, and he had a positive test in a survey test in 2003. It was reported by the New York Times. It wasn't supposed to be public, but it, because it became public. But the commissioner, Robert Manford, basically gave him a pass. He said that it was a survey test, that not all of the tests uh, were 100% accurate, and that you shouldn't hold it against him, plus the fact that he did play another 12 years where he was tested every year, and he never tested positive. But there may be some voters who feel like, well, if I'm putting David Ortiz in the Hall of Fame and I think maybe, how do I not put Bonds or Clemens? So there may be that factor because the last time that Bonds and Clemens had an increase in votes uh, were when Jeff Bagwell, Yvonne Rodriguez, and Mike Piazza were getting put into the Hall. Those are all players who had suspicions or whispers about them. It's not fair. There's no proof. But it was real, and, and especially with Piazza and Bagwell, it held them back for many, many years uh, from getting into the hall. Finally, they went in. Uh, but it was when those players were inducted that Bonds and Clemens saw their biggest vote increases. And so that's the one wild card uh, that might tip the scales in 2022. But I agree with you. More likely than not, they will not make the Hall of Fame. Kurt Schilling obviously being kept out for different reasons. Schilling 
for whatever reason, despite the 3,000 Ks, the historic you know walk rate, the postseason success, Kurt Schilling doesn't pass the sniff test, which is the primary reason he's being kept out, at least as of now. And the second reason is because he's kind of an awful human being. The writers have, have made a stance and they're keeping him out. I think that early on in the ballot, they decided that he was better than Musina. Then after all the tweets and the dumb comments he made, they penalized Schilling big time. He's getting that support back. I don't think he's going to get in next year, but I can see him getting in the following year. Yeah, it, it could be next year. Um, it could be the following year. The the um, I mean, he it got 60.9%, just under 61%. Um, this uh, this past year, that's uh, that's that's normally somebody who has that level of support. It'll take them two years normally to get into the hall if they have years left. And Schilling does have three years left of eligibility. Uh, however, uh, with Halliday and Mussina going into the hall this year, Schilling um, will now be by far the best starting pitcher on the ballot other than Roger Clemens. And, of course, Clemens has the PED. So for a non-PED-linked player, Schilling is the only starting pitcher that's, you know, um, that's elite. Uh, Andy Pettit is still there, but he got less than 10%. So Schilling could see a big jump. Uh, the, the, the political comments, you know, I mean, who cares? Uh, I understand some people were offended a few years ago, but it, it's uh, his political views have nothing to do with what he did on the diamond. And man, that guy took the ball five times when his team faced elimination, and he won all five of those games in the postseason. Best postseason starting pitcher in the last 50 years, uh, just barely ahead of Madison Bumgarner. I think Schilling's an obvious Hall of Famer, and I wouldn't be shocked if he went in next year. But agreed, it'll be 2021 if it's not 2020. What do you think of the 2020 class? Just looking ahead a little bit, both of both you and I do some Hall of Fame forecasting. And next year will obviously be headlined by Derek Jeter. We know for sure he's getting in. I guess the only question is, does he get 100% of the vote? But there's no one else who's going to get in after that in terms of first-timers to the ballot. You're looking at Bobby Abreu, Cliff Lee, Jason Giambi, Alfonso Soriano, Josh Beckett. Those are the rest of the guys coming on the ballot. Uh, Jeter's obviously getting in. Who else do you think gets in? Do you think Schilling or Walker join him? It could very well be a class of one. It could be Jeter only. That's certainly a possibility. Um, I I think Schilling and Walker will both be close, and so it could be a two- or three-person class. Uh, as you said, there's, there's nobody else who is new on the ballot that's going to overwhelm anybody. Uh, Bobby Abreu is an interesting case. There is going to be a portion of the sabermetric community that really pushes his candidacy. Uh, he had a war of 60 on the nose, uh, 400 career stolen bases, 288 home runs, a 395 on base percentage, 128 OPS plus. I, I see him kind of in, personally, I see him in the Lance Berkman category, and I like Berkman as a candidate. There was no room on the ballot for him. Uh, but Abreu is certainly not somebody who's going to, you know, you know, blow the doors off of the, the barn and get in over, get over 30 or 40 percent. So uh, the fact that it is, a, it's for the first time since 2012, it is a ballot where the limit of 10 is not so constricting as it has been in, in previous years. So uh, Jeter may be the only one who gets in. Walker, I think, 50-50 chance to join him. Same with Schilling, 50-50 chance. 
Uh, we'll probably refine those odds, Ross, when we get into December next year. Absolutely. But, uh, uh, you know, that's why I see somebody like Roland making a, a quantum leap because uh, Roland is one of those guys that was listed as, you know, this is my 11th player, Scott Roland. Jeff Kent, uh, the all-time leading uh, home run hitter for second baseman with 377 home runs, 123 OPS plus for a second baseman. His, his war is low because the defensive metrics don't like him. But uh, I think Jeff Kent, who is running out of time, um, he uh, only has four years left. I think with the ballot space being open, you could see some big jumps uh, with him too. Uh, there is space available for people to make big leaps. And so the, the, the question will be not only – do Schilling and Walker join uh, Jeter in the Hall of Fame class of 2020? But who moves into scoring position? Who makes the big jump forward uh, where their eventual induction becomes somewhat inevitable? And we're going to see the big jump in 2021 because that year the first-timers on the ballot are Mark Burley, Tim Hudson, and Torrey Hunter. So none of those guys are going to get in. None of them may even get 5%. That's where you're going to see Kent, Roland, Helton, Vizquel. Huge jumps from those guys. Schilling will certainly get in if he doesn't get in next year. Two years from now is a really interesting class because we haven't seen a group of first-timers so thin in a long, long time, and that'll do a lot to declog the ballot as well. You're absolutely right. Just to get back to Kent, because uh, there's a writer that... uh, uh, that I uh, met at um, the Hall of Fame this summer, uh, Barry Bloom, who uh, made a comment. He writes for Forbes magazine that he didn't want to waste another vote on him. And I said, don't give up on Jeff Kent. Uh, there, are, there are players who have been in that 11th to 13th spot on a lot of uh, writers' ballots. And um, with eight players getting inducted to the Hall of Fame in the uh, uh, this year and, and last year, um, those spots are open now. So it's really the, the big question is who is going to be the biggest beneficiary this year and especially, as you said, in 2021 of the uh, the unclogged ballot. And uh, Viscal might make a big leap, but Viscal may run into a sabermetric wall like Jack Morris did. Uh, you know, Omar Viscal is very popular among uh, what you would call old school quote-unquote writers. They look at the elegance of how he fielded his position. Um, he uh, made fewer errors at his position than anybody in the history of the baseball on a percentage basis uh, in terms of fielding percentage. Sure-handed, acrobatic, barehanded catch-and-throw, but he had a career war of about 45. And so he may, um, in, in terms of the history of the Hall of Fame voting, uh, Viscell really should be an obvious Hall of Famer in the future, but he may run into a block of uh, resistance uh, in the upcoming years, and he may, and I think he will actually be passed by uh, people like Roland, uh, and I'm not sure who else. It might be Helton. It might be, uh, it might be Billy Wagner, uh, but it's hard to say. Lastly, before we wrap it up, I'm curious what you think the Hall of Fame is, what the Hall of Fame is right now, and what you think it should be. Uh, that's a great question. Well, first of all, it's a museum, um, and it's, it celebrates the history of the game. Uh, in terms of the players that are in it, um, it is the very, very best players in the game. Uh, over 19,000 major league players, and, and you know, only a couple of hundred are Hall of Famers. Uh, I, I do think that there is this uh, eternal struggle between 
people who want to see a small hall and people who want to see a big hall. Uh, you know, we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast about how the the first half of the 20th century was a little bit maybe overrepresented, uh, but certainly uh, the, the Hall of Fame is a place to celebrate baseball history, and it's um, that's an abstract question, so I'm kind of making this answer up on the fly. It's uh, uh, and it's a place to honor the best of all the players, and when you see the reactions of the players. These are players who made tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. They don't have to work a day for the rest of their lives. But the joy on their faces when they are, even if they know they're getting in, Edgar Martinez knew he was getting in, and he's a stoic guy, but just the way his family reacted and the the Rivera family when it was announced that he was 100%, um, the speeches are always so emotional. It means so much to these players, and um, it's it's just a it's a magical a magical uh, place in Cooperstown, New York. You've been listening to Chris Bodig. Chris runs the website Cooperstown Cred. You can find him on Twitter at Cooperstown Cred as well. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time today. Sorry about my voice. <laughs> Ross, uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me on. <laughs>